Uh, I have some, uh, 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 I guess, particularly thoughtful things this morning on Proverbs. Uh, I'm going to ask you, I know it's early, but I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on. Uh, in, a, in a sense, uh, you cannot really uh, begin to grasp wisdom if you don't think about it, if you don't begin to understand it and grasp it. So this morning, our... our uh, our, our lesson is one that's going to take you engaging. And uh, one of the things I would ask of you as we go through this together, um, in your, your worship folder in the middle, there's a little place for notes. Uh, it might be worth it to you if, if the Lord is speaking to you specifically about something, just to write a little note to yourself. Um, one of my friends said to me one time, um, if you found a $20 bill lying on the ground, wouldn't you put it in your wallet? Well, yeah, or your pocket or whatever. He said, well, if God gives you something worth priceless amount, why wouldn't you put it somewhere you could remember it? And why wouldn't you write it down or why wouldn't you? Make it to where you remember what he said. Because you would grab the $20 bill, and actually most of us would spend it very quickly thereafter. But the, the treasures of God are for the rest of your life and for all eternity. So if, if we have this every week where we have these little places for notes. Second thing is um, everything that we're sharing over the course of this uh, series on Proverbs is being influenced by the wisdom of others. Uh, Lisa and I did a lot of study. Uh, there's a great commentary by Bruce Waltke on uh, Proverbs. We uh, are using uh, a great writer by the name of Ray Ortland Jr. wrote on Proverbs, preached a series on Proverbs. Tim Keller at Redeemer Church in Manhattan is very influential to us, and also a, a Scottish theologian by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. So everything that we're giving to you is not new. But it's been interesting, you know, I've studied Proverbs since I was a college student, but something is hitting me more powerfully in this time than I've ever seen before. And maybe it's just that I'm getting, slowing down enough and, and focusing enough that I'm, I'm letting the wisdom that's been there actually penetrate me. And so I hope you'll slow down with me and let this wisdom penetrate into your life. This is eternal, timeless wisdom. And every time I, I'm looking at these passages, it is just, it's blowing me away. Uh, the other thing I'd like to say is, I, I really love the 830 service. You're my guinea pigs. <laughs> you know, you're the ones that I test out. You're the first ones to hear it. By 1130, I'm professional. <laughs> but in 830, I feel like an amateur. So I always appreciate that you, you stay with me and you help me. And, uh, and this, is, this is where it's raw, in a sense, as I share these things with you. So I'd like, for, uh, I'd like for you just to open up your hands for a minute. The Bible says we can ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So that's the two things we need. We need his wisdom from the Holy Spirit. And we need it revealed to us, not just, you know, not just something we try to figure out, but revealed. So would you say this with me? 
by faith, by faith. I, receive, I receive in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. a baptism, baptism in the Spirit, in the spirit. of wisdom and revelation. Amen. Amen. All right, so I made a, I made a kind of an error. I uh, was trying to follow the, uh, the devotional book, and I was pushing ahead to chapter four. So Tuesday, when I told uh, Ashley what our chapter was, I told her chapter four, and then Lisa straightened me out and said, "You cannot pass over chapter three. All right, so. Your uh, worship folder is actually for next week. Uh, you have the futuristic version. But we're going we're gonna to look at chapter 3 because chapter 3 is precious. All right, so let's, if you, uh, if you like reading out loud with me, I like it when you read out loud with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to jump down to verses 11 and 12. Let's read God's word together. This is chapter 3 of Proverbs. My son, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let that sink in for a minute. I used to love it when I was a kid uh, in the church that I grew up in. Uh, when we would, we would read the scriptures, it was just, you would just sense, even as a, me as a kid, I could sense just this, the words washing over me. You know, the hearing of the word of God. Let it come into you. Let him impart this wisdom to you. So when, we, when the scriptures talk about wisdom, and uh, that's, of course, the key theme throughout this, this passage, it, it, it's making some very clear things that I'd like for you to take hold of. First, it is wisdom is your competence in navigating life's realities. It's, it's the victory that's yours to have. It's, it's the overcoming that is yours to have. And it is, it is so important that wisdom be rooted and grounded in reality. Because if it's not rooted and grounded in reality, it's not wisdom. It's fantasy. There are many people who are not in touch with reality and who live in a kind of you know, floating state. And then there are people who live so in touch reality, but feel overwhelmed by the reality. And for some reason, these people always marry each other. And the one creates anxiety, and the other one lives in anxiety. 
You know, it's just, it's, and, and so what are we trying to do? We want to get out of that natural disposition, either to be anxious or to be out of touch. Because neither is effective. Anxiety is not dealing with reality in a, in a uh, way that uh, overcomes. And not being in touch with reality doesn't help anybody. Even if you call it faith, it's just presumption. And so what God says through his word in verse 6, he says, God will make your path straight. So where then is the writer saying that wisdom is found? Um, when, when it says in verse 6, God will make your path straight, he's, he's basically saying, God will make your life go well. Okay, does anybody want that? Okay, take your finger. We're going to do this a few times today, maybe. Look at that person next to you. Poke them if you want to. We have healing afterwards. Do you want your life to go well? Okay, all right. So then, who is it that's going to make your life go well? It's not you. It's not your family. It has to be somebody bigger. So it has to be, and this is why we are studying wisdom from the scriptures, is because we want God to make our life go well. But notice, notice the key here is the word path. It's the word path. In other words, it's not microwave. It's not magic. It's not immediate. I love this idea that finally came to me in my 30s is you can get free in a moment, but maturity takes a lifetime. You can get free of the things that bind you with one prayer, but it takes a whole lifetime to actually be, be mature. And so many of us want it so quickly. Or maybe even, maybe, uh, maybe this is only me, but, but sometimes I would see people who were smarter than me. I would see people wiser than me or, or stronger than me or they knew something more than me. And immediately, whatever they knew, I'd go get all the books on it. Because I hate it that someone knew more than me. You know, and so I'd read all the books and then I'd say, I'm just as smart as they are. But it was just pride. It was just pride. And it was wounding inside that says, if somebody's smarter than me, they're worth more than me. And so I run to get wisdom from books. Now, it's not that we can't learn from the books, but wisdom is how you make choices every day. It's the path that you take. Now, I love C.S. Lewis. He's one of the great writers, one of the great thinkers of Christianity. And, and he said this. He says, the actions you take day after day in ordinary life are turning you into something. They're either turning you into a wise person or a foolish person. Now, he said it even more distinctly in mere Christianity. Look, look, look at what he says. He says, remember, we Christians think man lives forever. Therefore, what really matters in those little marks or twists on the central inside part of your soul which are going to turn it, your soul, in the long run, either into a heavenly or a hellish creature. Now what he's, this, this, this is powerful if you let it. It's simple but powerful. 
Everything you think doesn't matter actually matters. Every choice that you think, this won't affect anybody, is affecting you. And you're either becoming more of an angel or more of a devil. Every decision marks your soul. You see, and when we, when we who are believers, we get that, then what happens is we begin to realize that there is a weight on every decision that we're making. So we don't cheat anymore. We don't lie anymore. We don't, we don't hide anymore. Because we realize that when I do that, I'm marking my soul either hellishly or heavenly. And that will manifest in all kind of ways. He tells a story in, in Mere Christianity. He talks about it how you know how your soul has been marked. And uh, he says there was a group of people that he didn't like who were in power politically. And the newspaper published a story about this group of people that he didn't like. And, and it said they are about to be arrested, thrown out of office for all kind of misappropriations and, and bad behavior and all of this. And, and the government is about to, to clean them out. And he says, see, I told you. I was right in not liking them. See, the evidence is there. Then the next week, the same paper recants and says, we were wrong. They really didn't do these things. They really, you know, everything has been exonerated. Everything, they're innocent of what the charges that were brought against them. He says, how you react to that news tells you if you're a devil or an angel. If you're an angel, you go, oh, I'm so glad it wasn't true. And you adjust and you go, okay, my initial impressions were wrong. But if you're a bit of a devil, then you go, I can't believe it's not true. I am sure they're as bad as I thought they were. As a matter of fact, I think they're even worse. See, what happens when you have wisdom is you adjust to reality. They're not as bad as I thought they were. But when you're a fool, you try to adjust reality to what you already believe. They are as bad. As a matter of fact, they're worse. They just haven't been caught yet. And you begin to adjust. And so what happens is, are you tracking with me on this? What happens is either the character of wisdom will manifest in your decisions and what will come forth is will come forth truth, humility, courage, grace, or what will come forth is pride, cowardice, bitterness, stubbornness. And see, Life doesn't produce those things. Your decision enforces those things. What you decide to do with reality and the choices that you make, the Bible says, will either produce in you a hardness, more demon-like, or a softness, more angelic-like. And this is wisdom Everything that's happening to you, everything you think nobody sees, everything that, every choice that you're making that you think has no importance, every single one of them puts a mark on your soul. 
Now, it's also interesting, isn't it, that he calls it walking on a path. Even the greatest athlete can walk farther than they can run. So it's a marathon, friends. It's not, it's not a sprint. It's a lifetime. And even if, even if, if up to this point people have said, you just don't seem to be very discerning or you don't seem to understand things or you seem clueless. If this day you do what the scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In other words, some of the, those marks of the past, you have to stop living in them. And you have to start over and say, Lord, I'm starting on the path where you will make my life great. Where you will sustain my life instead of the path that I've been trying to sustain. See, there's, a, there's always a choice here to try to get God on your path or to switch paths and get on God's path. It's as simple as that. Now, let me just talk about how in this passage it says there are four things that develop you as a person of wisdom. Uh, I like you, let's just say them with me. Knowing God, God. trusting God, God. obeying God, God. and living living in community. Now, all four of these, Solomon says, are the keys to having a wise heart, a wise mind. Um. Solomon says it this way, and he's speaking to his son. He says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Now, that that sounds wonderful. You know, maybe we could put that on a greeting card, or maybe we could make it a necklace, you know, and put it around our neck or whatever. And you go, oh, isn't that beautiful? But you go, how do I do that? What does that mean? Let Let me tell you from the Hebrew. Sometimes in English, we don't get the full conveyance of what the scriptures are saying in the original language. This was originally written in Hebrew. And the words that are used for love and faithfulness are not the love and faithfulness of other people. It's the love and faithfulness of God. Now, here's what this means. And and you have to grab hold of it. See, if the beginning point of your path is a question mark as to whether God loves and delights in you, the path will always seem treacherous to you. But if the beginning point of the path is the reality that not only does he unconditionally love you, and he delights in you, then if that's the beginning of the path, then every decision along the path will be marked and colored by the fact, I am loved and I am safe, and I am, I am the delight of my Father. But if that is not true, if that is not true, and you're questioning His love of you, especially what I hear from even seasoned believers, is they're so focused on how they're unworthy of His love. They're so focused on on how they don't deserve his love. I, I have people come up to the front sometimes up here, and they're just like, I'm so unworthy, and then I punch them in the nose. Not even in love. I'm just tired of hearing it. It's just bogus, friends. 
See, if you are loved, then it is irrelevant whether you're worthy of it or not. It's not even an issue. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, I, I mean, I, I can't even imagine it. I love my wife. I tell her, I try to tell her 10 times a day, 100 times a day, which she always wants one more. Okay? I mean, it's just the way of us, all right? But I tell her, and I tell her, but suppose she keeps saying to me, but I don't really believe you. Or she says to me, you say that you love me, but I don't think I'm worthy of it. See, all that does is make a wall between us. I'm offering her love. I am saying to you, I know you, and I love you. And if she says to me, but I'm not worthy of it, then she doesn't get to experience it, even though I have it for her. And if it's, that's true with me and my puniness as a husband, how much more is it in the greatness of the love of God? He wants you to accept it. Any, any qualms you have against it are irrelevant. And it's time for you to realize that. It doesn't matter if you're worthy. He does love you. It doesn't matter if you're a total screw-up. He knew what he was getting into with you. And guess what the Bible says? He delights in you. He delights in you. The word for love and faithfulness here, it's, it's a beautiful Hebrew word. It's hesed, although you have to spit and gargle when you say it. You know, it's a beautiful word because it's more than just, it's not only the idea of love, but it's favor. It's delight. And it's tied not to you, but to his faithfulness. So as long as he is who he is, he will love you as you are. And when you're convinced of that and you begin to, then you begin to commune with him, you begin to worship him. You begin to pray. Your prayer life begins to change because you're in the presence of true love. Well, knowing God then is a key. But the second one is trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You see, one of the things is I've met people, I've been one of those people where I believed God, but I didn't functionally trust him. Like I believed his word was true. I believed in the gospel. I believed in all kinds of things. But my functional trust was in the things I could see. For example, I believed God, but if I didn't have money, I didn't trust God. I believed God, but if I didn't have a job, I didn't trust God. Trusted my job functionally. I trusted my friends functionally. I would say with my mouth, I believe God. And the, the moment came early in, in my 20s where everything got taken away from me. Everything I'd worked for, everything I dreamed of, all of it ended in a moment. And I, I can actually say to you, the year was 1988. I had crashed and burned as a missionary. And I began, I, I, I left Lisa for a time. I left my kids. I said, I don't want to be a husband. I don't want to be a father for about, for about three, two or three months. I hid on the border of Mexico. I'd come back from Mexico. I did not want to go back to be a missionary. I didn't want to be a husband. didn't want to be a father. And so I, I just wanted to live for me. Because, see, I believed God, but I didn't functionally trust him. 
And what happened was so fascinating because I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to live as if there's no God. So for three months, I was, I was thinking, I'm going to do all the things I've said I'm never going to do. But every time I would go to do something, I'd start praying. <laughs> Lord, don't let me get caught. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm stupid and slow sometimes, but not totally stupid and slow. After a while, I go, how can I live acting like there is no God when everything I ever do, I pray to him? Do you, do you understand this? I mean, it was a little bit of wisdom creeping in my stupidity. And at that point, here's what I, here's what I began to say. I either have to trust him with my whole heart or it's not going to work. And God brought me back, put my marriage back together, put my family back together, changed me as a man, put me on a path of healing, and taught me how to heal others. You know, if, see, when you believe but don't trust, you'll never be wise. Because the wisdom has to come from what you trust, not just what you say you believe. Does that make sense to you? There's an interesting way to present this that someone, uh, I, I wrote it down for you. Where do I really get my sense of being safe and significant? Where do I get my sense of love and value? There is always inordinate emotion centered around anything that you functionally trust. And if it's not God, it clouds your judgment. Well, trusting the Lord. The, obeying the Lord comes down to this. Now, here's the one I really want you to put your thinking caps on. This one, this one the Lord is just teaching me so much about. And I'm, I'm going to try to, as best I can, give you the words of what he's sharing with me. You know, when you submit to God's word and you begin to say, I'm going to obey God's word because I trust him. You're basically saying, I am immersing myself in God's way of looking at things. So the way that this makes you wise is both there's a basic way and a complex way. The basic way is this. If you read your Bible, there are a tremendous number of principles and rules for how to live your life. Suppose one of you today is saying, you know, I'm thinking about having an affair. And, you, and then you go, let me see what the Bible has to say about affairs. Well, it will not be long before you realize the Bible has a lot to say about affairs. And basically, the Bible teaches no. Right? So there are so many things where it's a very, very basic, straightforward, doesn't take a lot of interpretation. Don't do this. But what we're talking about in wisdom is not always the choices that are moral. Like, for example, I want you to be wise if you're offered two jobs to know which job is going to make you flourish. Which job is going to bring you joy? Which job is going to bring you purpose? See, they both might be moral jobs, but they might not both be best for you. Sometimes friendships, you sometimes get yourself into relationships, romances, whatever it might be, 
where you have two perfectly moral choices, but one of them is wonderful for you, and one of them is horrible for you. And it takes wisdom to discern, because the Bible doesn't necessarily say, pick Joe. <laughs> Although I would avoid anyone named Job. Some of you get me quickly, some of you... It'll be a week from now, and you'll be laughing. <laughs> Listen to the live stream. So what I want to do, and this is where I'd like you to become very wise people, I want you to understand there is a more complex aspect of wisdom. And one of the ways that helped me understand it is a book by uh, uh, a Catholic theologian by the name of Alistair McIntyre, and he wrote a book called After Virtue. And you're going to have to track with me on this because it's, it's somewhat complex, but it's, it's actually very helpful. He tells that, he says, everything, everything that has to do with wisdom and decisions has to do with the story behind the decision. So he tells this story. Now, you've you got to listen closely to the story because it's, it's kind of a it's sort of a crazy story, but I'll, you're at a bus stop or you're at, you know, you're at the corner and some man comes up to you in an animated way and says to you the Latin for the common, the Latin name for the common wild duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. Okay, now just hearing that story, you're like, what the heck does that mean? Okay, but he says... If you put that, that incident into a narrative, it starts to make sense. Now, track with me. One narrative might be this guy is an escapee from a psycho ward, and he just goes around to everybody saying the, name, you know, the Latin name for the common wild duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. And that would make sense. You're like, he's crazy. Or another thing might be that he, mistaken, he mistakes your identity for somebody he met at a library somewhere who was asking him the question, what is the common Latin name for the wild duck? You know, and you look like that person asking him, and he thinks he's helping you. Or he could be a spy, and he's giving you the code. Okay, then all of a sudden, this insane story, or this insane action begins to make sense because you know the story. You understand? The reason that we immerse ourselves in Scripture is not just to get the rules. It's to get the story. Do you notice that most of the Bible is story? So all of us, you know, we tend to, let's say, let's, let's talk about the narrative behind our money. If you're a secular person and you, you, you think you're an accident and there is no God and this is all that there is, you have a different story about money. Your money is for your satisfaction. It's for your fulfillment. And therefore, you don't owe it to anybody. But if you're a believer and you believe you're not an accident but a creation and you believe that God is the source of your life, then suddenly money has a whole different story. And so many times what happens in churches, people say, how much do I have to give? They're forgetting the story. 
the story is that God is my source. A hundred percent of it is his. I'll put that in context that, that helps in a story that happened in my family. My, when we were in Costa Rica, we lived in Costa Rica in 1986 and 87. My son was five years old. Joseph, my son, was five years old. And every week, I would get all the change that I had from the week, and I would give him all the change as his allowance. And so he could buy, like, like sweets, or he could buy some kind of, you know, drink or a pastry or something like that. And we would go to town on Saturdays. And so we, we would go into town, and here's the sweetness of my son. He saw a woman with a little child begging. He took all of his allowance, all that he had, and he put it in her hand. He gave it all away. Now that alone is a pretty good story. But what he said afterwards was even better. I asked him, I said, son, why did you give her all of your allowance? He says, because daddy, you have more. You see, suddenly my son understood giving, but in a narrative, my father has more. I grew up singing a hymn. I don't know if the rest of you ever sang this, but it's always infected me and influenced my decision. This is my father's world. Some of you might not know it, but it's a hymn we grew up, many of us grew up with. And, and there, when that gets into you, then you look at money and say, I can give it away because my daddy has more. But see, if this is all there is, you can't give it away. You can't give it away without getting something back because this is all there is. So when you're studying the Bible and you're submitting to the word of God, your life is beginning to get a story. Your choices come from a story. And the story is, God loves me so much that there's nothing he withholds from me. That if I walk this path, he will make my way straight, my path straight. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, the last one is, is um, uh, of developing wisdom is the idea of community. Now, listen to me. Um, life and we're going to talk about this for a few minutes here, but life gets very difficult. Life gets very challenging. And one of the things that's easy to do is to kind of harden your heart, to begin to numb yourself so that you don't expect much, you don't hope for much, and you try not to get hurt by people. But Solomon is saying here that the fool is always someone who says, I am wise in my own eyes. I will protect myself. I will counsel myself. And then he says wisdom is actually to be able to see things through the eyes of others. And the, one of the main themes throughout the book of Proverbs is that you will always be the best you if you have many counselors. Now, I can illustrate this sort of easily. How many of you... When you hear your voice on a recording go, that can't be me. <laughs> or you look in the mirror and you go, that's not me. 
And yet, if you ask your friends, is that me? Oh, yeah, that's you. You really do sound that nasally and southern, you know. But see, in your own head, you're like hearing music when you speak. <laughs> the other thing I've noticed, you know, five years later, it's probably one of the great things of photographs. Five years later, you look at yourself and you go, I looked pretty good back then. <laughs> and you look in the mirror and you go, what happened to me? See, without many counselors, you don't even know you. And so the scripture says, if you want, if you want wisdom, you're going to have to, you're going to have to open yourself up to a community and you're going to have to connect that you will not grow in wisdom alone. You will grow with others. Well, would you like to know what, what uh, Solomon says is the catalyst of wisdom or the spark that actually makes all of the instruments of wisdom run? And actually, what he's saying here is that it runs at 10 times the normal rates when you submit to this. And it's the discipline of the Lord. This is, this is pretty fascinating. See, in, in verse 1 and 2, he says, if you do the right thing, if you're, if you're on the right path, you'll get peace and prosperity. How many would like that? I like that. He said, if you do the right thing and you're wise, then you'll get favor and a good name. If you, if you do the right thing and you, and you make these good best choices, then you'll have straight paths. And then he also says in verse 7 and 8, he says, you'll have health for your body and nourishment to your bones. There's not a single one of these things that we don't want. Then all of a sudden, he switches gears and he says, suffering. I'm like, let's go back to those other verses. But all of a sudden, he says, bad things are going to happen. Here, those of you who've been around a little bit, you begin to realize you can do all the right things and still terrible things happen. Right? Now, I've done a lot of bad things and terrible ha happen as well. And that's my fault. But I've also experienced doing good and having bad come from it. So what's he what he's saying here? Now, I think you have to be very discerning when you deal with the suffering in your life. Because there are some Christians who just resign themselves to suffering and don't realize that the promises of God encounter, uh, encounter an overcoming spirit for suffering. There are people who will not pray when they're sick because they just think, okay, I just need to suffer. I do not believe in that. I think the Lord has given us precious promises that we can go after the favor of the Lord. And I think the default setting of the believer should be healing. And if Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundantly, if your life's not abundant, then you should be asking, why not? But at the same time, this scripture is very clear and says that the God who loves you and delights in you will also permit suffering in order to Correct, discipline, and reprove you. And the question often is, what's going to happen to me and how will I react? Anybody that you will ever encounter that you respect as a wise person will testify to you about the bad things in their life and how they had to come through them. There is no wisdom without suffering. There is no wisdom. People who have it easy their whole life never go deep. Only those who have encountered the storms have to let their roots go deep. 
And even if you watch, I was just in, in the city yesterday, and as you see these tall towers, they are not tall without having gone deep. You cannot go up till you've gone down. And so one of the biggest things that happens in terms of wisdom is God will take you to a place where you recognize that Jesus is all you need because Jesus is all you have. Suffering turbocharges wisdom. But also, suffering, if, if, if I don't react well to my suffering, it can produce the opposite. There are many people in their suffering, they become more prideful, more cowardly, they become bitter. I go back to the beginning, and, and this is where we'll end today. The whole key, the whole key in the midst of your suffering is to hold on with all your heart. He loves me, and he delights in me. See, as soon as that, as soon as that is uh, eroded away from your belief, no wisdom will come from it. You'll just harden. You'll just get bitter. And you will go after the things that will either distract your pain, avoid your pain, or deny your pain. Here in Proverbs forms the basis of what takes place in Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, the writer goes right back and says, the Lord disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves. But immediately he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, is this, are you with me on this? Let me, I, I want to tell you how, how personal and practical this is. There are seasons in your life that will make a lot of sense. If you stay on the path, there will be times on the pathway and you'll just go, this is what I was made for, this is what I live for, and it, you will just be in sync with the path then there will be other seasons in your life where God is chastising you, correcting you, disciplining you, and you will go, God, why can't we go back to the way it was? And he says, because son, I love you. Daughter, I love you. And in those moments, the writer of Hebrew says, that suffering is not evidence that he doesn't love you. That suffering is evidence that he does. And it takes a man of God, a woman of God, a person who functionally trusts God and who submits to his word to say, I know you delight in me. I know you love me, even though this hurts. And you would not be letting this happen to me except that you love me. That's why the writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And then it, that whole passage is all about what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. See, I think you can have either your family's narrative or you can have Jesus' narrative. If you have your family's narrative, then the best you'll ever be is the best your family ever was. You'll probably have all their addictions. You'll have all their credit issues. You'll have all their selfishness, their greed. If your narrative is your family's narrative, the best and worst of them is all you'll ever be. But see, Jesus wants to rip you out of your family's narrative. And he wants to put you in his family's narrative. In John 1, it says, He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him and believed on his name, 
He gave them the right to be called sons of God. See, my narrative is no longer the narrative of my past and my failures. My narrative is not my family's past and their failures. My narrative, my story begins at a cross. Follows in a resurrection. Is even now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is who I am. And nothing in my life is going to change that narrative. From glory to glory. And if I have to suffer and go deep and go through times I don't understand, then I will fix my eyes on the narrative that Jesus is my Savior. That Jesus is my coming King. That He's my healer. He's the one who has made me holy. He is the one. He is everything to me. That's my narrative. And then my choices flow out of that narrative. Is that your story? Is that your story? Then no matter what you're going through right now, then the Bible says, take hold. He loves you and he delights in you. He loves you and delights. And, and you might say, yeah, but I don't like what, who cares? He loves you and he delights in you. Take hold of that. Because if you fix your eyes on how bad it is, you'll fall off the path. But you take hold. Come on, take your hand with me. Come on. He loves me, and he delights in me. Solomon says, bind it around your neck. Attach it to your heart. He will not let even the least bit of your suffering be wasted. Not a single sorrow. Will you stand with me? Thank you for letting me test this out on you today. See it. If you'll let this come in, you'll realize Christianity is not a bunch of rules and rule keeping. It's the story of your life. And it's the story of God's love for your life. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Will you do that with me? Lord, seal what you're doing today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you uh, give your community a little hug as you go out and tell them, uh, you can say to me what I really look like, how 